This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. That's Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the pew. And Matthew 11 can be found on page 816 in the Pew Bible. It's 816. Okay, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're paying attention to that scripture reading, it really took like a tone shift, right? It kind of went from like, woe to you, doom and destruction, and then like, come to me, I'm gentle and humble and you'll have rest. And, and so like you're going to get in this passage some really uh, kind of seemingly disparate aspects of Jesus' character that actually come together in a really beautiful way. Uh, I'm going to admit before we get into the passage, uh, we won't have the time to unpack all of it, which is why this passage is going to be kind of in two parts. So this morning we're going to pay attention primarily to the first half. Again, fair warning, it's the doomy part, you know. Uh, and then we're going to kind of lead into the invitation of Jesus to provide rest for our souls. Next week, we'll focus explicitly on those last couple verses to unpack more about what that means. And so I want to give you a heads up uh, for that. Uh, We take time every Sunday to spend time in God's Word because we believe that Jesus is actually with us. Uh, Not just to examine an ancient document, not just to kind of glean some moral kind of truths or ideas uh, from a, a religious book, Um, We actually believe that the Word of God is living, it's alive, and that through it, Jesus, through the power of His Spirit, speaks to us. And I have felt such a significant weight this week around this passage because I think Jesus is speaking some really powerful warnings for people like you and me. 
Well, we like the kind of like invitational Jesus, which is like forgiveness and love and gentleness and grace. But his love doesn't just invite us to healing and grace and forgiveness. His love also cautions us and warns us when we're headed in destructive ways. And I think there are warnings that Jesus has for us in this passage that are really important for us in our culture and our city uh, to heed. And so I want to pause for a moment and give us a second just to kind of remember that God is with us that the Holy Spirit uh, is among us, he's within us, and that he actually wants to speak to us. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is working in you to kind of light up areas of your life where you're turning from God's design and from his presence and from his love. Uh, If you're here and you're exploring Christianity, we believe that God has sent his spirit into the world to awaken us to his reality. And we actually believe that God wants to do something in your heart today. And so we're gonna calm our hearts before the presence of God and then ask him to work among us. So would you join me as we settle our hearts in God's presence? Let me just invite you to take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, uh, we are grateful that in this moment we are not alone. Jesus, Father, you have sent us the Spirit to work among us, and we uh, believe it, that you are present, you are working, you are speaking, you are convicting, you are encouraging, you are healing and guiding, you are saving and forgiving and cleansing and reconciling, you're redirecting. And so I pray that this morning you would help us to hear the words of Jesus spoken almost 2,000 years ago in a fresh way today, that Jesus, you would speak to us today, that you'd caution us about the ways that we are mindlessly following the practices and values of culture towards destructive ends, and that we'd also hear your invitation to a better way, uh, to follow you, to come to you, to experience life and joy and rest. And so would you do something spectacular in our lives? Would you change the direction of our lives today? Where we've veered off course, where we've wandered from you, which all of us are prone to do, like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Would you wake us up to our plight and call us to return to Jesus for life to the full? We pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, There are a lot of ways to divide people in the world, and one of them uh, is, is to divide people along these lines. There are people in the world who, like me, love maps, and then there are people who don't. Uh, like my wife. My wife does not love maps. I love maps. And when I say maps, I'm talking about like not Apple Maps or Google Maps. I'm talking like, remember the paper ones that you had to unfold? And like, if you knew maps, you knew how to fold them. If you didn't know maps, it was always this mess. And so I loved maps. There was a day, if you don't know, if you're younger, uh, when you didn't have a device that would show you where to go, you'd have to get a map of a city. And the map of the city would just be kind of a, a big thing. And they'd have these little kind of like box outs, different neighborhoods in the city and downtown. And so When my wife and I got married in 2006, uh, we moved uh, to Virginia Beach, which we had never been there before. And we are from Kansas City, a suburb of Kansas City. And so places like Kansas City, which were just developed way later, especially suburbs, are just easy grids. And just grids, numbered streets go one way, you know, kind of named streets go the other way. It's pretty simple. Denver's similar mostly, except for downtown. If you're new to downtown or new to to Denver, downtown messes you up all the time. but. Kansas City was like that. Virginia or places on the East Coast are just very different. One, it's all these old paths that became, you know, 
trails that became gravel roads that became like different destinations. And so those paths also worked around bodies of water like bays and rivers and inlets. And so the roads are just different. They change names weirdly. And so we got married and we moved to Virginia and I did what I do when I go to a new place. I got the new map. Or if you had like the State Farm Atlas book, anybody remember that? Like the red book that had all the states in it. Great for road trips. Um, Some of you are like, what are you even talking about? And you're like, well, you missed out. Um, And so I remember we got this map, and I got it, and I went to the kitchen table one day, and we were newly married, and I'm like, honey, let's look at this map. And my wife looked at me like, I knew there were some things about you that were lame, but this... (laughs) This is, this is up there. And, uh, and I'm like, it's fun. She's like, looked at me with this look of like, this is the farthest thing from fun that she could imagine in her mind. But she's more of a kind of, where am I? And follow landmarks towards a destination person. Anybody relate to that? Landmarks towards a destination. I'm a get my mind around the whole city, like whole city person. I want the bird's eye view. I want to know where things are. And, uh, and part of that for me Uh, is I want to have a sense of where I'm at, where I'm at with relation to other things, how to get to my destination, the types of roads I'm looking for. So every time we'd move to a new city, I would do this, and it always drove my wife nuts. And then the kind of first time I've ever moved to a new city that didn't, I didn't have to do that was when I moved to Denver because I now had an iPhone. And with an iPhone, you just like plug in your destination. You don't even have to think about it. You just mindly follow the voice that says, turn left and one quarter mile or whatever, just Siri or Google or whatever you use. You just mindlessly follow directions. You don't have to pay attention to signs. You don't have to pay attention to landmarks. You just plug it in. And what happens is you might actually not have a good sense of where you're at with reference to other things, but you're going to end up kind of where you want to go. And the reason why I bring that up is in in the passage today, Jesus is actually going to be comparing two different ways of life. And we talk about ways of life, two different paths and directions. And part of what he's doing in in the really kind of heavy oracles of woe and doom is actually cautioning people, saying you you don't understand the direction that you're headed. You're mindlessly following the voices of your culture towards a destination that will lead you to a place you don't want to go. And what Jesus is offering us in his ministry isn't merely forgiveness or a ticket to heaven or reconciliation with God. He's actually offering us a whole different way of life, a whole different way of navigating reality. And so there are a lot of different people have talked about this. John Mark Comer talks about this quite a bit. Mark Sayers talks about it, this idea of mental maps, where we all have a mental kind of like understanding of reality. And so the way Comer will define mental maps is a collection of ideas that help us make sense of reality. So you have a collection of ideas in your head that help you make sense of the kind of terrain, the cultural terrain in which you live. So you have an idea of what gives purpose in life. You have an idea of what family is all about. You have an idea about what your body exists for and how to kind of engage your body. You have an idea of the way you're supposed to think about material accumulation and possessions. You have an idea of how a person should interact with their neighbor or how you should handle conflict or how you should treat somebody who disagrees with your values and your way of life. You have ideas of this, and these ideas are kind of absorbed over time through the cultural artifacts, the values of the people around us. And all of those things are at play shaping for you a kind of terrain through which you are finding a way to some version of a good life. And so your map of how to get to a thriving, flourishing life, which all of us are sort of like have this inner impulse to drive towards, is about avoiding certain things, pursuing certain things, and navigating through reality 
to find some experience of life. And what Jesus is doing in this passage passage is cautioning us that when we just absorb the values of the cities around us, they won't always lead us where we want to go. There are deceptive ideas. There are unhealthy and damaging ideas. There are things that feel really good that are actually really damaging. In the words of a famous proverb, Proverbs 14, 12, is there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way leads to death. Like there are things that feel right, that seem right, because everybody else seems to be living according to the same rhythms. Everybody else seems to be living according to the same values. Everybody else seems to be kind of having the same basic concept of life. And so if we just kind of aimlessly follow the way of our culture, what Proverbs says and what Jesus is saying in this passage is, when you mindlessly follow the way of the culture around you, even when it feels right, it often leads to a destination that is full of pain and destruction and death, which is a heavy word. It's a heavy word, which is why Jesus doesn't just speak about that with power and with a direct force in this passage. He also offers an invitation, what's been known as the great invitation, an invitation to a different way. And again, it's not just a way of forgiveness, though it is that. It's not just a way of reconciliation with God, though it is that. It's a whole different way to be human that runs contrary and against the grain to a lot of the cultural values and assumptions and practices that kind of permeate our life. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at uh, kind of this in, in two different sections. We're going to look at the warning that Jesus gives in the first few verses, and then we're going to look at the invitation. And between that, we're going to see sort of the heart of Jesus in the middle of all of it uh, towards those, one, who resist his warning, resist his wisdom, resist his invitation, and then those who are open and needy before him. So first thing I'm going to do is want to look at this sobering warning. There's a way that seems right to Denver, but the end of that way is a way that leads to death. That's a hard thing to say. There's a way that seems right to Denver, Denver culture. I'm saying that broadly in a sort of corporate state. There's a cultural narrative and cultural value systems that aren't monolithic. They're very different. You experience them in different ways. They have different contours for who you are, where you live, what your value system is. But there's a way of the world around us that leads to death, and Jesus cautions us against it. I want you to see it in the passage here. Uh, Look with me at Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities. Where, the, where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Um, Jesus has just been talking about John the Baptist in particular, but at the very end of the passage, Miguel was preaching it here last week, at the very end of the passage, Jesus sort of grieves this fact that this generation, which is a kind of way of speaking to the kind of cultural narrative and the sort of dominant cultural narrative that kind of permeated the society where he was speaking and doing his ministry, was so kind of resistant to his invitation to life. Though he was showing love and compassion and healing, they they were just like an unpleasable generation. They were always looking for something different, always criticizing, critiquing Jesus through their own kind of cultural lens. And so they'd look at somebody like John the Baptist and they'd say, man, that guy's weird. He must be possessed with a demon. Then they'd say, Jesus, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And they're like, he doesn't fit our system either. And they just reject John and reject Jesus because neither fit their sort of system. And so they had this kind of presupposition that their grid through which they were thinking about reality was the grid through which they should interpret reality. And Jesus and John didn't fit, so they're out. And Jesus, on the heels of feeling that, begins to, this word denounce, to speak against these cities. And I think it's just fascinating that he says, 
these cities, not just individuals, but whole sort of cultures, whole frameworks of viewing reality. And here's what he says. He says, because they did not repent. I want to pause for a second on the word repent. Um, the Greek word for the word repent is this meta-naeo, which is essentially a changing of the mind. Meta, a changing, a transformation. Naeo is your thinking or your mind. And so in the Greek kind of conception of repentance that shows up throughout the New Testament, it's a changing of your thinking. Like there's one way of thinking, and you've been introduced to some new information. Maybe it's something about the pain of that way of thinking, the destructive plight of that way of thinking, or potentially just a better way of thinking, or a more accurate way of thinking. And so the idea of repentance in the Greek text is a shifting and a changing of your mind. I'm going to dismiss that way of thinking and begin to think a different way. Underneath that Greek word, and probably Jesus either speaking Aramaic or in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew is this word shuv, which is a word for turning. And it's much less kind of like mental and cognitive and more directional. And I think both of them get at the idea, kind of a full biblical idea of repentance. It's a changing of the way you're thinking that leads into a, a change of direction in your life. Like I thought a certain way, and that was steering me in this direction. Now I've been introduced to some new information. That way was leading to difficulty. That way was leading to challenges. I heard this other invitation. I saw this other way. And so I changed the way I was thinking and I turned the direction of my life accordingly and started heading in a different direction. And what Jesus is saying is he had been in these cities where people were in a lot of different ways kind of running from the reign of God. They were using religious structures to exalt themselves at the expense of other people. Some were compromising with Roman kind of structures and value systems, compromising, turning away from God just to find comfort and make their life work in a kind of system where Roman was a the Roman kind of empire was oppressing their experience. And so there was a kind of concept of syncretism, which is just absorbing the values of the kind of culture around you, the values and the idols and the loves and the passions. So it's sort of conforming to the way of the culture around them. And then there was also this sort of like religious arrogance that was leading people to use religion and religious systems to exalt themselves against other people. And these are the things that over and over throughout history, God would send prophets to warn his people you're compromising with the cultures around you, or you're failing to be the sort of self-giving lovers that I've called you to be. You're failing to love God and to love neighbor. Either way, whether it's this conformity to the world or this failure to be who I've called you to be, the prophets would come and they would pronounce these oracles of, of doom, essentially saying woe was a way of grieving this impending doom that was on the people of God. As you run away from God's presence, it leads to death. And the prophets, especially Isaiah, would pronounce these woe oracles. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Which feels foreign and archaic, but it's a way of just grieving the plight of the world. Like you are headed and you are on the precipice of a cliff that will lead to destruction. And it's just grieving that impending doom that's kind of upon them. And so Jesus, in the vein of these sort of prophetic oracles, kind of in the, on the heels of these miracles that he's done, he's saying, you have seen me over and over and over. I'm healing people. I'm forgiving people. I'm bending, binding people up. I'm reconciling people. I'm, I'm transforming lives. You've seen this in these cities around the Galilee. You've seen my work. You've seen my power. And you are either disinterested, like kind of, oh, that's fascinating, kind of cool for those people. That's interesting, you know, and then pass them by, or opposed altogether. And that was the kind of predominant state of the cultures where Jesus had been doing his miracles. They were predominantly either disinterested or kind of explicitly resistant. 
And it's the disinterested piece that I think is just fascinating. Because I think in our culture now, there's a kind of a, a sense of tolerance for different ways of thinking, and there's maybe even a, a some degree of appreciation for the person of Jesus. But the idea of needing to see Jesus and actually turn from the ways that we're living to actually give wholesale allegiance to Jesus as Lord, as King, as Savior, to actually align all of your life under his authority, to orient all of your life around his presence, to give all of your life to his wisdom and his instructions, say you're the creator king of the world and I'm going to follow you. That sort of wholesale surrendered allegiance is so foreign, even in a Christianity like in our culture. There's an interest in the person of Jesus, but a resistance to actually heed his wisdom for life and to turn or to repent from the ways we're living and the value systems of the culture and to actually begin to align our lives with Jesus' wisdom for life. And so Jesus begins to pronounce these woe oracles over three particular cities on the north side of Galilee. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. It's a heavy word. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these cities where Jesus had been ministering, healing, forgiving, loving, teaching, that had largely dismissed his message, largely resisted kind of turning to him and giving allegiance to him. Maybe we're fascinated, maybe we're intrigued, maybe we're interested, maybe learn some nuggets to help kind of shape their life, but did not kind of leave their direction of life to follow him like he was inviting people to do. And Jesus pronounces a woe over the whole city. There were certainly people in those cities that had turned to him. In fact, almost all of the disciples were from these cities. But the majority had not. And Jesus looks at them and says, you are running towards your death. The word Hades there isn't a word for hell. The word Hades is just the word for the grave, that there's a, a, a running away from the God of life towards a, a way that leads to destruction and death. So even the way you think about like uh, even judgment of God, the judgment of God as a rejection of the reign of God, a turning from his presence. And as you turn from his presence, there's an exiling that leads to separation. And that separation is, is experienced not just as a physical death, but as a separation from the God of life, a separation from the God of love, a separation from the God of light. And in that experience, there is a misery that is unmitigated. And the more people run with a lack of kind of awareness or interest in the God who made them, there's a running towards death and doom that is just real. And it's not kind of popular to talk about. It's not exciting to talk about in churches. And it's a warning that Jesus is in no way shy about giving. We're going to get to some places later in Matthew where he's going to unpack themes of judgment in ways that are just sobering and super countercultural. And so for our culture, we think, oh, that's kind of like archaic and old and unloving or whatever. There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is a way of death. There's a pattern of thinking that seems 
popular and common in our culture, but those patterns of thinking lead to death. And so when God's word actually introduces to you this reality that to resist the reign of God, to resist the love of God, to run from the presence of God leads to pain, we have an option now. Will we interpret the words of Jesus through the lens of our system and our cultural narrative and decide what we like about Jesus and what we don't like about Jesus, what we're going to kind of absorb into our way of thinking about the world and what we're going to reject as old and archaic and obsolete, Or will we allow the word of God to transform and change our pattern of thinking and consequently potentially change aspects of our direction of life? And these are the questions we always have to ask, which is why here we're just not going to shy away from the harder things that Jesus says. We will get to some of the beautiful invitation here in a moment. His gentleness, his meekness, his love, his invitation, his grace, his kindness. And it is that exact kindness that is motivating him to take a really serious warning that we need to hear. And so one of the questions I've been asking is if Jesus were to enter into Denver and show his mighty works and show us his love, which in so many ways he does often, give us these evidences that he is the Lord, he is God, he is the Savior, he is the King, he's the one who's come to rescue us. And if, as so many people in our culture are very familiar with the claims of Jesus, but we've decided to be largely disinterested in giving our whole lives to him, what would his woe to you, Denver, be? It's hard, right? We love Denver. I love Denver. I love Denver. There are people from where I'm from in Kansas that are like, oh, you live in Denver. That must be pretty hard, those liberals. And I'm like, sounds good. (laughs) You know, like, uh, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy your life there. Um, I love Denver. I love it. I really love it. I love the culture. I love the city. I love so many of the values. I feel like when I moved to Colorado, I felt like I was made for Colorado. It just like lights up so many aspects of just who I am, the ways of thinking and living and culture and practice. I love so much about it. The problem is we we talk a lot about actually appreciating the goodness of the gifts of Denver, and we should. Everything God made is good. But when we disorder those joys and we start kind of trying to take the good gifts of God and we kind of orient them in our life in different ways that push God out of the middle of our life and push him into the margins, and then we say we're going to kind of suck out the good gifts of culture while pushing the God who created these gifts away from the middle. Now these practices, this attempt to build the good Denver life apart from the presence of God, now becomes severe idolatry. It actually becomes a way of rejecting God by grabbing onto his gifts without kind of an appreciation for the giver, without acknowledging him the way Romans 1 will talk about it. We take all these things of God. We've seen his evidence in the mountains and in culture and in beauty and in family and sexuality and and food and all the things that we love about Denver. We see his goodness. We push him out and we worship the creation over the creator. And so the questions that I'm asking right now are what are the ways that we as people in Denver are prone to turn away from God's wisdom for life and God's presence. I think there are a a lot of them. Uh, But I want to just kind of hone in on a couple. Uh, One of the things I think is common throughout sort of Western society, but I see all around me here and even in my own heart, is just this idea that I need more and better stuff. I need more and better stuff. So this lie of material accumulation, that the path to life and my mental map of reality, as I think about my path in life and what's going to require, what's going to lead me to thriving and flourishing is just more or just at least better. I just need to constantly upgrade my possessions, upgrade my house, upgrade my car, upgrade my neighborhood, upgrade 
my clothes, upgrade my friends, upgrade the kind of like mental kind of like uh, way that I think. I just need to keep thinking about kind of personal upgrade. Uh, there's a philosopher named Rene Girard who talks about something called mimetic desire. Mimetic is this idea of kind of copying the desires of other people. So his whole premise is that we are unable as human beings to sort of like desire on our own. We don't have kind of personal direct desire. We learn desire by mimicking and imitating the desires of others around us. And so you see somebody else has something and it seems to make them happy. And so you decide in your heart, I want that thing that seemed to make them happy. Whether or not it actually satisfied them or actually gave them kind of the kind of happiness that you imagine it's giving them, you imitate their desire and start bending your life towards it. So I think about this with like something like coffee where growing up, my parents were not coffee drinkers, but my stepfather, when my mom remarried, was a coffee drinker. And so I would smell the best part of waking up every morning. I'd smell uh, Folgers in his cup, and, uh, and I would be like, it smells good. It doesn't look good. It doesn't taste good, but it smells good. But I wanted to like it. I wanted to like it. Just something about him filling up a thermos before he went off to work with Folgers. I'm just like, it just looks awesome. I just like want that. If I wouldn't have seen him love that, I wouldn't have loved that. And I tried for a long time. It took me years, years. I had to like start with a lot of sugar, a lot of kind of like, uh, you know, what, uh, the kind of the syrupy creamers, you know, with the pumps, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you still do this. Just don't do it in public in Denver. Do it privately <laughs> in your house. So I started with that just because it helped me. And then I'm like, okay. And then finally I upgraded to Starbucks. Oh my gosh, Starbucks. I'm like, you know, way up there now. And, and I was in Fort Collins. I remember I'd go to Starbucks all the time and drink Starbucks. And I moved down to Denver. I'm like, ooh, Starbucks is not cool. <laughs> uh, Starbucks is not cool uh, in Denver. I didn't know that, but I saw Joel Olympic making coffee with thoughtfully harvested beans that were thoughtfully roasted and then thoughtfully brewed because we know that when you pour hot water manually over ground beans, it's way better when a than when a machine does it for you. Way better. Way better. And so I learned that, and now I'm like, all right. And you get the Chemex and get the, all the kind of, whatever it is, right? You just... I want that. It seems to make them happy. I bet it'll make me happy. And it kind of does. It kind of <laughs> uh, like, does make me happy. So, but I learned it by imitating the desires of other people. And you do the same thing. Times every issue you can think about, right? You see somebody else. This is like social media and all of modern advertising is cultivating this in us, that you see other people living certain things, having certain things, pursuing certain things, and you begin to orient your life accordingly. If I just had, if I just got, if I just had what they have, and then we constantly kind of change our referent group. We constantly change our referent group. And so there's a whole book called Status Anxiety that talks about we compare ourselves to people around us, and we kind of we don't compare ourselves to the kind of uber wealthy out there because it's like that's an unattainable life, but we will compare ourselves to some kind of semi kind of like a close group to us in sort of social status and kind of maybe income or education. And you look and you just constantly see that, but then you keep upgrading that referent group where it just never feels like enough. And so the Bible word for this is covetousness or greed. I always want more and more and more. And there's a way that seems right to Denver, but the end of that way leads to death. It doesn't satisfy. 
It leads to discontent, dissatisfaction, greediness, covetousness, and this kind of endless plight for more and more and more stuff that will never satisfy. It's one of the things that dominates the cultural narrative and the idea system that we live in and we drink the water, you're born into the culture, you swim in this water, you drink the Kool-Aid, you breathe the air, and it just feels right. But it leads to death. It leads to death. There's also this sort of like self-directed hedonism, this kind of pursuit of pleasure, but pleasure as I define it. Pleasure with my body the way I define my body. Pleasure with vacation and pleasure with comfort and pleasure with kind of experiences and pleasure with friendship and pleasure with possessions and pleasure with whatever it is, food or drink or whatever. And we're constantly chasing pleasure after pleasure after pleasure after pleasure, thinking that this will finally give me the life I long for. And it won't. Self-directed hedonism, and I say that because I think God actually wants us to experience pleasure according to his design. But when we say, I'm going to decide and define for myself what's right and what's wrong, and we take upon ourselves our own sort of autonomous kind of like um, ability to establish the right way to live, and we run away from God's reign and authority, it leads to pain and death. Good things, when they're not oriented around God's presence and under his reign, become really destructive and painful things. Things like family. We pursue family. You pursue relationships, whether it's marriage or a certain kind of relationship or kids or, or as you're navigating these things, you think like, if I just had a healthy family, if I just was in a healthy relationship, if I just had healthy kids, if I just had more kids, if I just had whatever it is, then it would be enough. So then you move from the city center and you move to the suburbs. And I don't mean this negatively about it, but you just find like more room, more space, and I'll have this kind of experience here. And if I get the kids in the right school, and if I get this situation right, and if I get kind of into these kind of after-school activities and these recreational things and this kind of experience, if you try to position your family, like if I can just get it all positioned right, like everybody else seems to have, then I'll be satisfied. That will never satisfy. Family is a gift. Culture is a gift. Sexuality is a gift. Drink is a gift. The city is a gift. But when we pursue these things and we chase after them, it leads to death. And I think Jesus would say, woe to you, Denver. You are running hard after good gifts, but you are not running hard after me. You're running hard after the things I've created, but you're not running hard after me. You are running hard to try to build some good life apart from my presence, but you're not running hard after me. And these things will lead you to death. They will lead you to death. They will never satisfy The created things will never give you the life you long for apart from the presence of the creator. You can't rebuild the Garden of Eden without the God of the Garden. You can't build a kingdom that brings satisfaction without the king of the universe. You cannot experience the good life without the God who gave you the life in the first place. We never will. And we run. And as we're running, there are signs. There are warning signs and caution signs that show this path leads to pain. There are people, moments like this, that in God's kindness on a Sunday morning in the middle of September as we open up God's word and land in Matthew 11 the Holy Spirit is giving you a sign through his proclamation of his word to say don't keep running that way this is God's word speaking to us today and when we harden our hearts against his voice and continue in the direction this is the exact reality into which Jesus is saying woe to you you are running towards doom not with this kind of indignation but a grief and a pleading, there's a different way. There's a different way. And that's what Jesus has come to give us. He's come to give us an invitation to this different way. But not everybody will hear it. 
And that's this transition point right here. He says this so clearly in the passage. Verse 25. He says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. And I want you to hear this, not as a, um, Jesus isn't like, what I'm about to do is I'm about to give you some theological points to kind of like put in your head. He's actually emotionally turning to God in the midst of his grief. Do you understand that? He's grieving that the generation that he's in in the cities where he's been showing his power and his love and his kingship are rejecting him. And so in that place, he turns to God and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. A lot, a lot could be said about these verses, but the heart of these verses, to get on the heart of it and the content of it, is Jesus in the face of watching whole people groups reject his reign as he's come to human history that God in love and in compassion sent his son into the world to rescue us from our destructive plight. And Jesus, the son of God sent into the world is showing his power and his love and his compassion and his grace and his ability to heal and rescue. And people are like, nah, and keep going. And Jesus is grieving that so many have hardened their hearts, but not all have hardened their hearts. And so he turns to God, watching whole kind of masses of people run away from him. He says, God, I, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. The kind of contrast that he's painting right here is those who have this sense of self-sufficiency and kind of a confidence that they know what's right and they know what's best and are going to continue in that, they do not hear this message at all. It kind of goes in one ear, ear and out the other. It seems ridiculous. It seems unimportant. It seems irrelevant. Why? Because they're still content pursuing the path that they've been on. They still feel good about the direction they're headed. They still feel confident that they know what's right. They know what's best. They know the direction to go. They're surrounded by people that are doing the same thing. And if it feels good, do it. And if the culture around us is doing it, it must be good. And if everybody seems to think this is good, it must be good. If everybody seems to think this is the way we should think about life and our bodies and marriage and family and money and possessions and culture, if, if everybody seems to be doing it, it must be good. And I feel good about it. And as long as you feel good about it and you feel confident, you've got this thing figured out, the good news of Jesus will just, you'll miss it. Won't even be interesting to you. Part of that is your own reluctance. Part of that is actually a, a judgment upon that hardness of heart. That until you come to a place of brokenness and need, which is the word here for little children is this word for little infants. It's like these little infants that are just needy and they know they need help. I've got a little infant in my house right now and I forgot how much they don't know anything. Like, little humans can't survive. A lot of animals in the animal kingdom can survive in some way. They have, like, this instinctive understanding, and they kind of get up. Little humans know nothing. They know basically how to feed immediately, which is insane, right? doesn't always work great, but sometimes it does. It's insane. But other than that, they know nothing, and they're entirely dependent on the nearness of their parents, on the wisdom of their parents, on the power of their parents entirely. And Jesus is like, that's who's going to hear the good news of my kingdom is when you come to me saying, I tried it that way and it didn't work. And I'm now coming to embrace the fact I don't know what's best. 
I can't create my own path to the good life. I can't forge my own kind of life towards flourishing. I, I can't even kind of accomplish it. I've been frustrated. I've hurt myself and I've hurt others along the way. And, and, I'm, and it's not working and I need another way. And Jesus is like, okay, little child, come to me like that and, and you will see the good news of my kingdom, the invitation to a whole different way. And that's what he's calling us to. And in the passage, he's going to open up this invitation to any who he says are weary and heavy laden, burdened and exhausted. If you've been trying the way of Denver and it's leading you to loneliness and weariness and burnout and anxiety and depression and broken relationships and pain and regret and a sense of missing out and a a loneliness, if you're like feeling like this way does not give life, it's like you are ready to hear an invitation, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, all you who are just tired of going that way, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. I'm gentle. I'm humble towards you. My my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm going to lead you to a soulful rest. And soulful here is just this word suke. It's life. I'm going to give your life a restedness, a, a peace, a a breath, an experience of love and calm and shalom. I'm going to give you inner life that is going to help you live in this world in a different kind of way. And so the yoke, we'll talk about this a lot more next week. The yoke is a way to carry the kind of like burden of life. And so throughout sort of Hebrew tradition, people would actually talk about the interpretation of Torah, the way you're going to kind of navigate and carry the laws of God as a yoke, the way you're going to approach life as a yoke. And so life is full of burdens, full of challenges. What is the way that you've learned to carry those? to carry those things. There is a way that the world carries burdens. There's a way that the world navigates through life, and that yoke leads to you becoming weary and beat down, like heavy, tired, exhausted. And when that yoke finally kind of brings you to this point of like, this isn't working, and I'm not making any path to life, and Jesus is like, hey, come over here. Come to me. Come to me. I see you're weary. I see you're beat down. That's what that path leads to. I'm offering you a different way, and it'll give rest to your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm not trying to crush you or make these demands of you. I'm trying to teach you the way that humans were designed to live in communion with the Father who loves you, in dependence on the presence of a spirit who's with you and can guide you and lead you, in submission to my words over you and companionship with me along the way, as you learn to love other people and to think about your life and your vocation and your marriage and your family and your relationships and your neighborhood and your city through the lens that I'm teaching you, as you learn this, it's a better way. And when you follow my way, you will find rest for your souls. That's what I think is so powerful about this passage is that Jesus has intervened into our journey like a wake-up call as we follow our map towards an end that's leading to difficulty. He's intervened. And in that intervention, he is one, atoning for our sin, forgiving us for our rebellion. He's two, reconciling us to the God of love who loves you and is with you and communes with you and wants to spend time with you throughout the day and cultivate a relationship with the God who designed you. And three, he's also teaching us a different way to live, a different way to be human that is more congruent with reality that is according to the truth of his design. And as we learn to follow Jesus in communion with the Father and dependence on the Spirit, we find rest for our souls. I love what 
Augustine famously said, his first opening paragraph to his confessions, he said to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You've made us for yourself. You designed us to walk with you and know you. And as long as we seek rest and joy in life in other ways, we will continue to live restlessly, constantly searching, constantly feeling weary and beat down and disappointed until our hearts finally find rest in you. And that's my prayer for us, that today you'd wake up to the areas in your life where you are buying into deceptive ideas, running in different directions, and that we would turn to Jesus to find rest. We'll talk more next week about what that's all about. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we need you now. We need your spirit to convict us that we don't want to hear your word We don't want to hear your warnings, nor do we want to hear your invitation and walk away unaffected, unmoved, continuing in patterns of thinking and living that keep leading us towards destructive ends. And so I pray that you would give us the heart of little children, like little dependent, needy kids that say, God, we need you. We don't know what's best without you. Our own wisdom, our best ideas, are not leading to flourishing. We want to return to you. We want to find forgiveness and love and compassion and comfort and guidance and instructions for life with you. And so Holy Spirit, would you convict us this morning of real ways that we're living according to destructive ideas and patterns? Would you wake us up in in compassion and kindness? Would you reorient our life towards you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.